From the book of 2 Kings, chapter 2, starting with verse 1. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, the Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, As surely as the Lord lives, and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives, and as you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. Fifty men from the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance, facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his garment and tore it in two. Elisha then picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah, he asked. When he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over it. The word of the Lord. From the book of Galatians, chapter 5, starting with verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. The word of the Lord. Before we stand for our gospel reading, um, and if you know, I was in some training this week, and 
learned some of the ways that, um, and some of it was reinforcement, but some of the ways that the church historically has done liturgy in services. And, and one of the things that is so beautiful and so valuable is the church has always treated the reading of the gospel as this just incredible proclamation. Why? Because we actually believe that Jesus is speaking to us in the reading of the gospel. And if Jesus is actually speaking to us, what should we do? (laughs) We should honor that moment, right? So one of the reasons why historically the gospel is brought to the center and then everyone stands, let's all stand together, is the belief that somehow Jesus is entering the room in that moment. Now, in some congregations, you'll see that it's an actual procession where a big Bible is brought forward and there's a cross behind the Bible. And it's this moment of recognizing, shh, shh, everybody, everybody, let's show honor. Jesus is about to speak to us today. Now, I've been in a lot of churches and a lot of churches that say they really honor the Bible as the final authority, right? Um, But what an interesting and amazing way to declare that, right? So this morning, we believe that God is speaking to us. And today, Jesus is speaking to us from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 9, starting with verse 51. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, let me go and bury my father first. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see all your faces this morning. It's good to be with you all. Um, I want to say, first of all, thank you for um, those of you, your prayers and encouragement. I told you that I had my last class towards priesthood ordination this week, and that all went really well. Um, I, I was less examination than I thought it was going to be and less interrogation than I thought it was going to be, and it was a bit more training. And I think I passed because I got a test, uh, text from the instructor afterwards that said, um, Preston, you're going to be a wonderful priest for many years. So, um, so that's encouraging. So I will keep you all posted. There will be an ordination at some point. Um, and that should be either late this summer or in the fall. I don't know if that will be in Tulsa. That's kind of where our cathedral is, our central church is, um, or there might be one here. So we'll have to see, and I'll uh, keep you all posted on all that, but that's um, headed this way. So um, today, uh, we're going to step into our texts, um, and I want to first of all say that our Old Testament text is incredible, it's amazing, and there's so much going on with Elijah and Elisha. There are so many connections between the Old Testament and our gospel text today, and I'm not gonna be able to make them this morning. 
So today we're going to focus on our gospel text and on the book of Galatians, but I encourage you to go back and read this story um, with Elijah and Elisha. But today I want to talk about the way of Jesus that we've been called into and how radical it is. We talk about that a lot around here, but the way of Jesus, this path that we've been invited into, this path that the Spirit leads us into is so different <laughs> than our expectations. In fact, we could say the whole way of discipleship is Jesus, the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, constantly upending our expectations. When we think we have God figured out, when we think we have things figured out, it's the, wait just a second, here's that challenge to that. Jesus is constantly upending the ways that we seek to inherit the kingdom of God, specifically the ways that we think that we live out the kingdom of God on our own, the ways that we earn it, the way that we can produce it, the way that somehow something about us is the way that the kingdom is brought into. The book of Luke up until this point, the point of our gospel text, has been telling us who Jesus is, his identity. And after Jesus is revealed as the Messiah, the one who's come, he says, follow me. And Luke, from here on, from chapter nine on, is about Jesus calling people into discipleship. And it's this journey, I love this literary device that Luke uses, it's the journey to the cross, the journey to Jerusalem. And all along the way, he's calling people to follow him to the cross. It's this beautiful thing. So today, I want us to remember that the church is bound together. We at Sacrament, but also the church throughout the world, throughout the ages, gathering all throughout our city and our state and the world today and throughout the ages, is bound together by the Spirit of God, bound together by the call of Jesus. We're not bound together by affinity, by we all like the same stuff. So we're all together. Kind of culturally, we're all similar. I remember talking with a guy one time on a golf course and he was just bragging about his church that he was going to, which is wonderful. He was talking about how he loved his church. He said, yeah, I love my church because everybody's just like me. He said, everybody's got about 2.5 kids, he said. <laughs> and he said, kind of live in the suburbs and everybody's a lot like me, right? And, and I kind of, I understood his joy and his passion. I also grieved a little bit. <laughs> I said, that's not the church. The church is not where we're bound together by culture or affinity. We're definitely not bound together by politics. We are bound together by Jesus's call to follow him. That's it. Our gospel text today is full of all these misunderstandings of Jesus. So everybody misunderstands him here. Um, Jesus and his disciples are headed to Jerusalem. It's the journey to the cross. And Jesus is prepared to lay down his life, to give himself up. He knows that he's headed to Jerusalem for that purpose, to give himself up for the world, to die for the world. And he enters on the way, he enters this town in Samaria. Samaria is the outsiders. If you know some of the story, they're kind of considered half-breeds um, to the Jewish people. The Jewish people look down at, at them with disdain. And he enters this town and he's rejected. You could say that's the story of Jesus's life that he enters a place and he's rejected. That's what John says. He came to that which was his own and his own did not receive him, right? Like that's the rejection of Jesus over and over again. So he goes to the Samaritan town and he's rejected. And James and John are with him, these really close disciples. And what's their response? Their response is, hey, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy those guys? <laughs> we kind of want to just, as readers and hearers, we want to go, seriously? Like, you still don't get it at this point. Like, you think that's Jesus's mission. Who they have in mind is Elijah, who we read about. This prophet who kind of did that kind of thing. 
he would call down fire from heaven on his enemies. So they're thinking they've just had this mountain of transfiguration experience where Jesus has been revealed as greater than Elijah and Moses. And they're like, if Elijah could call down fire from heaven on his opponents, of course, Jesus can do even more than that. So they're kind of obsessed with power here. They're going, we have the power. We're like his chief of staffs, right? Like we can call down power from heaven against his enemies. Um, The disciples are trying to also show Jesus how committed they are to him. That I can perform some signs against these people and show you, Jesus, we're in this with you. Now, there's probably some like racism involved in this from the disciples. The Samaritans were considered outsiders. They were different, right? There's definitely some self-righteousness going on. We can do this. We have power. But what they've yet to see is Jesus is doing something different than the power that they understand. He's going to the cross. He's going to say from the cross, Father, forgive them. Forgive the ones who've rejected me. Forgive the ones who have killed me, for they know not what they're doing. So being a disciple of his means something different than the way of power and revenge. It means something more radical, something more at the core of creation than that. So, and we might ask the question, do you know why judgment doesn't come down on the people who rejected Jesus? Fire doesn't come down on the people who rejected him. It's because Jesus is taking the judgment on himself, not calling it down on others. That's what's so radical. He's getting ready to take the rejection. He's getting ready to take the judgment. So Jesus rebukes his disciples. He says, I'm leading in a different way. So Jesus comes before power. There's a different way of power. But then as they continue, there are other people who want to follow him. So there's this first guy and he comes up and he's really eager. He says, Jesus, wherever you go, I will follow you. And I don't know about you, but I hear that and I go, wow, this is, this guy's really committed. Like this should be the good guy in the passage, right? This is what, as a church planter, when I'm going around and telling people about our church, this would be the dream response, right? To go, yes, wherever your church goes, I will go with you. <laughs> like I'm, I'm in this thing, right? But Jesus doesn't give that response. He gives a really cryptic one. He says, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Now, it's important to say this. There's nothing wrong with what the man said. There's nothing wrong with saying, I'll go with you wherever you, I mean, that's wonderful. But Jesus pastorally here senses in him that he has a faulty expectation. And we don't really see that in the passage. We don't see it explicated in the passage, but something about Jesus's response is saying what this guy expects is not what's going to actually happen. This guy's really eager, but he's eager because he has a faulty expectation. A lot of people wanted to follow Jesus because they wanted revolution. They wanted the Roman authorities to be overthrown. They wanted to be delivered from oppression. And that involved assembling an army, gathering constituents, all those kind of things. So there's a chance that this guy is wanting that from Jesus. Raise up an army, get your constituents together. I'm with you and I'll follow you wherever you go. But Jesus senses he doesn't know what he's saying. You don't understand the kind of kingdom I'm bringing. It's different. I'm a savior who will be condemned and die. That's different. Specifically, he sees that this man has lived a settled settled life, that he has a house and he has possessions. He's asking this man and really challenging this man, I don't know that you're ready to make that second place 
to make your settled life second to following me. I don't know that you're ready for that. Now, some of us read this and we go, Jesus has really bad networking skills, okay? Like, he seems to be talking a guy who wants to follow him out of following him. Jesus, at least, like, leave him with your business card or, like, something like that. Like, like keep the connection open and go, hey, if you want to seek this different thing. But that's not what he's doing. Jesus is basically saying, I don't think this thing is for you, bud. Jesus senses that this man is an idealist. He thinks he wants to follow Jesus, but when the rubber hits the road, when this true kingdom is revealed for what it is, he won't be able to put his settled life in the backseat. And I think this is a challenge that all of us go through when we first decide to follow Jesus. We are rightly excited about it. I don't know if you've ever been around people who have discovered faith for the first time. It is beautiful and it's wonderful. And there's a beautiful idealism in that. It's it's awesome. We often, when we first come to faith, we think about the benefits of following Jesus. We're captured by the spirit of the whole thing and how it's changing our lives. And that's great. There's nothing wrong with idealism. I think it's wonderful. But what Jesus does is he digs below the surface to show idealism can't be our idol. That we can't follow the dream of being a Christian more than we follow Jesus, if that makes sense. He's maybe preparing this man for the moment of the cross, that there will be a time when you follow me when everything's gonna seem lost, when it's gonna seem broken. Will you be with me then? And I wonder, in what ways do we find ourselves in our relationship with Jesus? In it, in order to get something out of it. The center of this man's life, and we infer it from Jesus' response, is success and status and possessions. And he sees Jesus, perhaps, we kind of infer from this, as hope for that, as as the ideal for that. One of the ways I know in my life that I see when I get in these kinds of modes, where maybe I think that my Christian faith is more about what's for me, is when my prayers are only for stuff in my life. I don't know if you've ever been there. When I spend a lot of prayer time and I go, Lord, I pray for this need for me and this need for me. Now, God hears all of our needs and he wants to hear us express those things. And it's important for somebody who's new to faith, especially to hear that God hears all of your prayers, the prayers from your heart and the needs that you have. But at some point, there comes a point in Christian maturity where we recognize this is actually living for Jesus is about others. And it's not just about me and my needs. Jesus embodies and shows us a way that is always others-oriented. So we can say the disciples had power as an idol. Jesus comes before power. This first guy kind of has his stuff as an idol or his settled life as an idol. And then we have a third guy. And this third guy has a different problem. His concern is not with possessions, it's with his father. Now, I wanna warn you that as we read this passage, they get harder and harder, (laughs) okay? Um, he wants to be able to bury his father. So he says to Jesus, I want to follow you, but let me bury my father first. In fact, in Judaism, this was one of the most important responsibilities of a son is to be there to bury his father. Somebody would spend their whole career raising money for an appropriate tomb that was in the right place in the Kidron Valley for when the resurrection happened, you'd be in the center of it all. Okay, that was the belief. So spend their life waiting to bury his father. And as I read this, I go, this seems like a reasonable request. 
But we have to understand what's going on. There are some indications here from the text that the man's father's not dead. It's not that the man's father's died and he wants to go bury him, nor is he close to death. We don't see any indication of that. Jesus is sensing that this man is overly obsessed with security and planning. He's going, let me just take time for my father to kind of wind down his life. Let me get to this stage and then I'll choose to give my life to you. He's kind of obsessed with his security and his planning. In our lives, that may be something like, well, let me just wait until I'm a little bit more financially secure, and then I'll give my life to Jesus, right? Let me wait until the kids all grow up, and then I'll kind of give my life to Jesus and follow him. Um, We think all of the kind of security and planning. For some of us, our idol is not success like the previous guy or a settled life, but it is security, When our security is messed with, we freak out. Some of us specifically, I think there's a personality kind of element to some of us that when security gets messed up in us, we freak out. We go, oh my gosh, my security, my safety net is gone. Jesus is once again digging below the surface. This man who has perhaps made an idol out of security, out of getting his affairs in order, Jesus challenges that. Following Jesus is not a plan. It's a complete orientation. It's a completely different way of life. It's fundamentally different from a plan and it undergirds everything that we do. Jesus is not saying this, don't hear this. He's not saying, yeah, you shouldn't worry about your father. You shouldn't worry about burying your father. No, he's not saying that. But he is saying that that can't be, that future planning and security can't be the first thing in your mind. The first thing is following me. How much of the risk of discipleship do we miss out on because we're afraid of the future? We're afraid of what might happen. God could never be calling me to that. I can't really go all in on my faith. My faith can be an additional thing that I add to my life, but but I can't really give everything to him. I believe that the nature of discipleship is that God often calls us to upend our comfortable lives. He does. It's hard to say, but I think that's true. When Ashley, Lucy, and I moved here six years ago, part of what we did was kind of crazy. When I told people we were planting a church, I would, in Tulsa, I'd run into people and they'd say, what are you doing? I'm I'm going to plant a church. They'd go, oh, great, where are you going? Nashville. They'd go, oh, do you have a lot of friends and family there? No, we just, we feel called to move to Nashville. Okay, are you, do you have a job out there that you're going to go take? No, we're going to start this new thing. It was kind of crazy what we were doing, but we felt like God was calling us to do that. God doesn't call everybody to do that kind of thing, but I do think we need to be ready if God calls us to make big risks, big leaps of faith, self-sacrifice that don't often make sense. And this is so challenging because the way of Jesus doesn't always follow the standard trajectory of an upwardly mobile family in the American South. Like it's just not the same thing. Sometimes we think it is, but it's not, okay? It's different. And sometimes it means God calls us to do less than we ordinarily would. What do I mean by that? We don't take a certain promotion because we know that that particular promotion might tempt us to be something that we don't wanna become that maybe that might challenge us ethically in a way that, or, or might be, cause us to become money-obsessed or status-obsessed, and we go, that's not what I want to be. That's not who God is calling me to be. Maybe we don't buy that extravagant thing because we choose, I want to give this away. 
I want to meet a need in my community or something like that. Jesus is getting to the core of the man's heart. Burying your father is good, but the desire to cover your bases before taking a leap of faith is not going to work. There's one more person that Jesus talks to here, and this one is the toughest, I think, because it seems like the guy just says he wants to say goodbye to his family first. Like, what could possibly be wrong with that, Jesus? In fact, in our culture, if he didn't go and say goodbye to his family, we would say he was the bad guy, right? But again, Jesus sees something in his heart that each of the last two guys respond to the call to follow Jesus with a but first. God, I want to follow you, but first. And I think Luke is giving us a clue here that both of these people have a but first in mind when following Jesus. They go, my first priority is this, but then I'll see if I can fit in following Jesus here. Um, Jesus responds with no one putting hand to plow is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Now, this is an important agricultural metaphor. In this culture, when you put your hand to the plow, when you plowed a field, you had to be careful to keep your eye steady on the plow the entire time. And if you even twisted your body to look back at where you'd been to see if you had been going straight, you were going to go crooked. So you had to keep your eye focused. And then also, if you didn't keep your eye focused, the plow might hit a rock and actually break the plow. So you had to keep focused and you had to keep steady the entire time. You had to be singularly focused. So Jesus is not telling the man to neglect his family. He's challenging the man's butt first. He's challenging his order of priorities. I hear your plan, but what is your orientation? Where are you pointed? Where are you singularly focused? And this may sound a little radical to us, but bear with me here. I, I think that family first can be an idol in our culture. Sometimes we think if I can just get the perfect family, that's the goal of life. Sometimes we start with family and we see how our faith or our discipleship can fit into that. But I think when we do that, we get it backwards. Why? Because I believe we are the best parents, the best spouses, the best siblings when we first commit our lives as disciples of Jesus. And when we do that, the kind of self-sacrificial love that comes out of a relationship with Christ is what reorients our family life. It's what I believe with all of my heart. Jesus is the embodiment of true self-sacrifice, of true love, of true self-giving, which is really the best of family life. That's what that's for. So when we idolize family life, we can end up putting our family first, but we find ourselves loving and serving our family for reasons that are off, maybe out of a sense of codependency, right? Maybe out of a need to make, I just need to make up for what my parents did to me right? Or out of a desire to one-up other parents or other siblings. I don't know if you saw this this week. The, um, there was an article about uh, a post that went viral of a lady who observed at a swimming pool, a mom and a little girl, who went to the pool, and they both had coordinating, matching swimsuits. They looked perfect together. The mom sat there for a second, laid out this perfect blanket and all these toys, put her daughter kind of in a floaty in the pool, and then went back and kind of escaped into her phone. And then she goes in and takes her phone. She goes into the pool, and she takes selfies of her and her daughter in the pool. And then she goes back, and she sits down and escapes to her phone. 
and the little girl is sitting there going, Mama, come play, come play. And, and the, now, it may be tacky that this lady posted that whole experience, but it did give us an insight. Sometimes our family life can be about, well, maybe if I look better than everybody else, right? Or if I can just one-up them, or even if it's not for show, if it's just, I just have to be a better parent than all my friends. I have to be a better sibling than all my other siblings, right? <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. We can idolize family life in different ways. So what do we do with Jesus' harsh statements today? We kind of understand the instruction not to burn people with fire from heaven, okay? Even though some of us, I think, still go, is that possible sometimes? Maybe we kind of get the one about Jesus being more important than possessions, even though we're tempted by that still. But these last ones are hard. When Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead, or when Jesus says, he who looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. I think Jesus is showing us something about radical trust in him. Being a Christian means trusting that the life Jesus offers and the way of living he leads us into is better than anything else, anything else. One of the things that we see in Jesus is a reorienting of the world according to God's desire for the world. In the beginning, God created a world um, out of the murky darkness. He stepped into the world and he ordered the chaos. He put things in terms of order and beauty and design. But the world went terribly wrong because human beings chose to reject that design, to usurp God's authority, to attempt to run the show ourselves. And we keep doing that over and over again. Our inclination is to usurp, to make ourselves the center of the universe, to overthrow God's authority. Because of that, we live in a world that's broken because of sin. But the good news is that God doesn't give up on the world. He never did. He stepped into our world, bringing about new creation. And that's only because of his mercy. It's not because we did enough and we jumped and got his attention and he came down. That's how some of the Greek gods, it was believed that if you could get their attention and you could do the right dance or you could earn the right merit, then the God would come down. That's not how our God works. It's because of his free mercy, not anything that we've done, that he came in and once again orders the chaos. And in Christ, there is a new creation. There is a new lordship. Jesus is putting things right. And when things are reordered rightly, there's good fruit that comes out of that. The world produces as it should. The loving, generous creator God has given us a new way of being in the world. And it means everything else has to be second place. Everything else has to be backseat. Even the good and wonderful things that we put him first and trust his lordship and everything is ordered rightly. When we put other things first, we're, we're actually not living into the fullness of who God has called us to be. And it becomes, as Paul says in Galatians, our text today, it becomes a kind of bondage. We're enslaved. When we put success first, we get into a kind of bondage. When we put power first, when we put security first, when we even put our family first, none of those things are bad in and of themselves. Do not hear me today saying success is bad, power is bad, definitely not family is bad, security is not bad. All those, good are, all those are good, but they're rightly ordered, Right? But Christ has come and leads us into this new humanity. So when we're baptized into Christ, the spirit of Jesus lives in us. 
And this leads to freedom to live as we were created to be in the first place. Freedom to be who we are called to be. Freedom, as the text says, to live by the Spirit. So in our Galatians text, Paul speaks to all the ways we've tried to do things on our own. We've improperly ordered our lives. The ways we've made an idol out of other things. And Paul's responding in this text specifically to a group, a political group at the time called the Judaizers. And the Judaizers were these Christians and they believed that, okay, if you became a Christian, if you were a Gentile and you became a Christian, it's great, you found Jesus, that's awesome. But now you also have to be culturally Jewish, okay? So not only do you take on the faith, you have to take on all these cultural things too. So you have to get circumcised, you have to follow all the Sabbath festivals, you can only eat certain kinds of foods. And so they were arguing that you had to step into a cultural milieu as well. And Paul's responding to that group and he's saying like, Well, in addition to that, there's also all these policemen, all these people who would look at you and go, you're in, you're not in. You need to do this better. You need to get this culturally right. And Paul's responding to that. He's saying, you're free from all of that. In fact, if you think you have to be a specific culture in order to come into the family of God, there's an idol there. Like you've put your culture above your faith in Christ. So he calls out, and there's nothing wrong with the Jewish law. In fact, it was necessary for a time. But Paul says you can't use the law to keep other people out, other people away from Jesus. So one of the questions that happened is Paul's going around and he's saying, hey, you're free from the Jewish law? Like you're free from all of that? So people are going around and going, okay, if we're free from that, does that mean we get to do whatever we want to do? Does that mean we could just kind of live as we want to because we're free, so we could just do anything that we want, anything that our whims tell us to do? As a parent, I think this metaphor is helpful here. When, when our kids are little, we have really specific rules for them, don't we? Like really concrete rules, <laughs> like do this, don't do that. And we have to be really concrete about it. Like my daughter craves these rules. She wants to know what is right and what is wrong. And ambiguity for little bitty kids is actually kind of scary. Like when you start talking about, well, in certain circumstances, we do this and do that, you have to introduce that over time. But when you do that when they're really little, it's like, okay, just tell me what the rules are, right? Ambiguity is scary. So Lucy wants to know, hey, what words are bad words? Okay, what are all the bad words? And, and of course, you know, tell her there are certain words that are bad that we wouldn't use in any context. But there's also certain words that are go, well, you know, that word's really not that bad, but we don't really want you to say it around Grammy, okay? <laughs> or, or these words aren't necessarily bad, but that's a bad attitude. Or don't say that word. Or in certain contexts, that's right, and it's really tough. She, she came up to me the other day and she said, Dad, which of my fingers is the bad finger? <laughs> and, and I said, sweetie, None of your fingers are bad. All of your fingers are wonderful. There is a particular finger that we would not like you to wag around in public, okay? Like, like there's certain um, things that are inappropriate. Now, my daughter, as she grows up, my hope for her is not that she will have the most concrete sense of absolutely what every little thing is right and every little thing is wrong. My hope for her is to know the path that leads to God's best and God's wholeness, and to avoid the ones that lead to brokenness. I think that's all of our hopes as parents. When, when she's free from me telling her not to touch the stove, and she says, why? And I say, because daddy says so, 
when she's little, I have to do that, right? But I hope as she gets older, she still doesn't touch the stove because <laughs> right? it's not best for her or wag her middle finger in public, right? Freedom doesn't mean there's no restraint, right? Paul is saying we are free, but that doesn't do away with the things that are God's best and the things that are harmful, there are things that are harmful. In fact, Paul says here that we can bite and devour one another if we're not careful. We are free for a purpose, and that purpose is loving each other and loving the world. That's what our freedom is for. So when we do things that are not towards love and not towards God's best, that's harmful. You're not defined any longer, Paul says, by what you've done or your cultural identity. And that means you're no longer defined by power, success, security, or anything else. You are free to love. There are ways in the world of disorientation and ways of orientation. So Paul lists off these ways of disorientation, and they're obvious. He says, comes right out the gate with fornication. That's the first thing he says. Why? Is it because Paul has a prudish sexual ethic? No. It's because he knows that sex is powerful. And outside of marital fidelity, it can tear us apart, it can tear communities apart. Then he lists idolatry and sorcery. Again, these are things that take God out of the center of our lives in the world. These are usurping actions, desire to take control away from God. And then everything else that Paul lists has to do with fighting with each other. <laughs> That's the whole rest of the list. Enmity, strife, anger, jealousy, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy. And then he says, drunkenness. Why drunkenness? Well, if you grew up in a household with a parent who is prone to drunkenness, you know that that doesn't lead towards integration and wholeness, right? It leads towards brokenness. It leads towards disorder. Things are not headed towards the kingdom of God. These things are signs that we're still in slavery. When we live by the Spirit, when we surrender to the Lordship of Jesus in our lives and we allow him to direct us, to bring order to our chaos, to rightly direct our lives, we see, Paul says, fruit that grows. And the fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Notice that this is the fruit of the Spirit, singular, not the fruits of the Spirit. Why is that important? All of them grow together. As we lean into the way of the Spirit, we'll see this fruit begin to grow in our lives. Like, you may know, why is it important that they grow together? Well, you may know some people in your life that are really gentle people, but it's not actually because they're being led by the Spirit. It's out of a sense of codependency or just being overly passive, or something like that. Um, that's not connected, actually, with true love. Um, I know some people who are really self-controlled, but it's out of a harsh sense of disciplinarianism in their life. It's not connected really to love or to joy. There are some who are joyful, but they're actually just delusional. <laughs> so they just go around just living in a denial state all the time and not actually seeing faithfulness, which is God's consistency through the difficult things of everyday life. Um, and notice how these qualities are listed as character qualities. They're virtues. They're not things that we can measure. What the law always tried to do is it would try to come in almost like with a ruler and say, did you do exactly this or not this? Well, character qualities, you can't put a ruler up to. <laughs> you just know them when you see them, right? Also, it's so important that we remember that it is not us who produces fruit in our lives. 
We are called to surrender to the work of the Holy Spirit. So what I don't want us to hear anytime we preach on the fruit of the Holy Spirit is I don't want you to hear, well, guys, if we could just all be more loving today, let's get our act together and be more loving, be more joyful, be more patient with each other. These are observations of a life that happens when we're surrendered to God. But what I'm trying to say today is that sometimes we protect ourselves from being surrendered to God by putting other things in that top priority. We revolve our lives around those other things because we're afraid of that surrender, that full surrender to the work of the Spirit. We trust that he sustains us. Um, You notice here that they are the works of the flesh, Paul says, but the fruit of the Spirit. The things of the flesh are things we do. They're things that we make happen. Fruit is something that grows organically out of being connected to a vine. When we're trying to put ourselves at the center, we're trying to work things up and make things happen, but fruit simply grows. No farmer makes fruit grow. Do you know that? No farmer makes fruit grow. The farmer's responsibility is to cultivate the soil and trust that the harvest is coming. The farmer doesn't keep the world spinning. The farmer doesn't control the weather, right? Doesn't force things to grow. We are called to surrender our lives to God and trust that he's the one who grows fruit. Our identity is in him. And as we surrender and we trust him, he will grow the fruit of the spirit in our lives. So in closing, wrapping all this together, the church is built upon the authority and lordship of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. The church exists because of Jesus by the Spirit, no other reason. The church is the only organization in the world that is built on this alone. And that means that we're not bound together by power, okay? No matter how some some Christians may act, we are ambivalent about having political power in our world, okay? The church does not exist as a lobbying organization to try to get legislation passed. That's not what we're here for, right? Power, we have a different relationship to power. The church is always called as a counter society, not seeking power, but laying down our life for the world. So if you're here today because you think joining the church will help you get ahead in the world and be more powerful, you're in the wrong place, okay? We are also not bound together by stuff, The way of Jesus is not seven steps to worldly success. There's a billboard that I saw again at a church in my hometown, not my church, a church in my hometown. And it's just really big on the highway and it says, helping people win. That's what it says, it's really big, right? And lovely people at that church and I, I don't wanna be critical, but that's not what we do. We don't help people win, especially if you're not defining, if you're defining win as just worldly success. Only in Christ do we have a proper understanding of how to steward what is given us. So we hold our possessions loosely. They can't be number one for us. We hold them loosely. And then we're not bound together by security. There are Christians gathering today under threat of persecution. We're not even promised the next day in our lives. We don't know what might happen in our lives. Jesus promised we will have trouble in the world, but he says we will overcome the world. Security can't be number one for us. And we're not even bound together today by family units. One of the things, one of the things I wrestled with is Jesus challenges us on our relationship with family. And I think Jesus loved his mother with all of his heart. I think he was a great son. I think he loved his brothers and his sisters, and I know that. Um, but as he challenges our understanding of family, it also causes us to broaden beyond just our initial family units. 
to go, the church is now described as a family. What does that mean, right? How do we love one another in this profound way? In Christ, we understand self-sacrificial love, grace for difficult times, and true forgiveness. And these are all things that, not that we do, but we yield to what he does. So what binds us together? If it's not security and power and success and all these things, what binds us together is the one who created and redeems the world, and the one who is making all things new. My hope today is that you would know that you have a new identity that's better than all those other things. That identity is in the reality that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. The Holy Spirit lives in us and leads us into a better way. Amen.